0: Hi folks, I'm Duncan Gill, child and adolescent psychiatrist.
1: And I'm Victoria Lee, licensed clinical mental health counselor, and welcome to Is There a Med for That?, the podcast about teen mental health and behavioral problems and what to do about them.
0: Victoria and I have been working for uh, years together with kids. Sometimes we use therapy, sometimes medication, sometimes we give some guidance to parents.
1: And sometimes kids just need to be left alone.
0: We don't have all the answers, but we probably have some of them. We'll do our best to share what we've learned over the years working with struggling kids and their families.
1: We hope you enjoy the show, and we can be helpful to those who have taken on the hardest job in the world, being a parent.
0: Hey, everybody, how you doing? Uh, Duncan Gill and Victoria Lee here, and uh, another episode of Is There a Med for That?
1: Afternoon, everyone. Happy to be here today with Duncan. It's been a little bit since we've recorded, so getting back in the swing of it.
0: It'll probably be a little rusty today.
1: Mm, I like that word. Rusty. Or rustic. <laughs> <laughs> Duncan likes to laugh when we do the podcasting.
0: I think of the first one.
1: We had a lot of fun, though.
0: That was a good bonding We're experience. Gonna... Yeah, it was.
1: To mess up a lot together. We've got to create
0: the bloopers. Right. I think we've probably got two or three so far. Anyways, here's what we're going to talk about today. Uh, I thought maybe we'd talk about the levels of care. Very important. So parents who come in with kids um, often don't know the different levels of care that there are in terms of what treatment options are available. And even if you know what the options are, unfortunately, they're not always available everywhere. And the waiting list, particularly where we are in New Hampshire right now, is pretty bad.
1: And we're talking about levels of care for mental health.
0: Correct. And Substance health. abuse, yeah, yeah. All those things. Great. But um I thought maybe we'd do briefly, I have a list here. Uh everything from outpatient therapy to outpatient medication management to group therapy, uh intensive outpatient programs and partial hospital programs, our personal favorite, I would say. And um inpatient units and residential levels of care. Did I miss any Vicky?
1: I would add <clears throat> maybe peer. Recovery support groups, like that's, you know, maybe prior to.
0: That's a good idea, like AA, that kind of thing?
1: AA support groups, um, but then peer level, uh, even programs like drop-in centers, recovery centers that are only peer-run. So there's no clinical team, but there is support for substance abuse or mental health issues with other people who have been in recovery from that issue.
0: Great. Let's put that... Let's put that between outpatient med management and group therapy. How's that sound? Perfect. Great. I'll take your lead. Okay.
1: Follow the doctor.
0: All right. Start with outpatient therapy. This is usually where, uh, you know, what parents think about when they're looking at uh, treatment for their kids and adults as well. Um, outpatient therapy usually looks like uh, going into an office maybe once a week, maybe twice a week, maybe a little less frequently. I'd say most often it's once a week and uh, meeting with a therapist. And, uh, talking about things, talk therapy, and then hopefully getting better over time. But, um, it's really a good place to begin and, uh, uh, usually can't go wrong with it even if, you know, uh, it's oh, worth a try.
1: Yeah. Yep. I was going to make a bad joke about bad therapists, but I don't offend anyone. So <laughs>
0: not yet, not yet <laughs> too <laughs> early. They
1: warm up a little <laughs> bit here.
0: Um, but yeah, so there's a number of different types of therapy. And I, I should add right now, um, finding therapists right now, at least in New Hampshire, is difficult as well. So we're talking, aren't we talking about weeks.
1: It really depends. Sometimes you can get lucky and get in, um, but I think yeah, definitely weeks to months for some people, unfortunately. But and there's all different types of therapists on the outpatient level of care. So it depends on what your needs are, what diagnosis your diagnosis your diagnosis your kid has, or you, if you're the one looking for therapy. Um, so if you're, you know, there's trauma-based therapists, there's WED therapists such as myself, um, you have tons of different types, and they all generally do a lot of talk therapy, but there's a different approach to it.
0: I was thinking about it a little bit, and I sort of, have, um, of the school, of thought that good therapy is good therapy, and that some of the differences between uh, the different modalities of therapy are more superficial in some ways, and Agreed. there's some real fundamental uh, ingredients that if if you can get, um, you know, I would say some people respond to different types better, but I think it's probably, it's seductive to think that if you have a certain problem, you need a certain type of therapy, and I think particularly nowadays, they really try to um, split uh, types of therapy based on diagnosis, and I think That sometimes is a mistake. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah, I think you're right to put first things first in terms of looking for a therapist. And a lot of it has to do with the quality of the therapist themselves and their ability to have a healthy relationship, who they are as a person, who you're working with.
0: Exactly. Um, The single most important thing is, uh, if, if we're talking about your child, is the ability to connect to your child. Yep. And I'd like to say initially it doesn't matter whether or not they like you. But initially, it really does. And yeah. able to uh, gain the respect, which is more important, um, a kid really has to like a therapist yeah. to start with. Yeah,
1: therapeutic rapport, as they call it in the field, right? To be able to build a relationship, therapeutic working relationship with the human that you're having the hour session with every week. Yeah, you have to definitely like your therapist.
0: You got to, you got to like your therapist. At you least might not like beginning.
1: moments. You might not no. moments with them, just like with your, like a healthy parent, right? You're going to hear yeah. things you don't want to hear, um, things that are maybe uncomfortable or painful to hear and process, or feel abandoned or upset at times. Um, but that, like all relationships, includes
0: it all. Yeah, angry. You might. You actually, some people might hate the therapist, but if it's a respect thing, usually. Um, It's the overall relationship that's more important. It's the the moments you may not like. Mm -hmm. Um, As a matter of fact, that's an important ingredient of of therapy as well.
1: Right. If you're comfortable all the time in therapy, you're probably not doing a whole ton of work.
0: I heard a great saying that was, therapy is two people talking in a room. One person's more anxious than the other.
1: Yeah. (laughs) True. And it might go back and forth depending on the moment.
0: Uh, Another fundamental thing that's important for therapists is the same as um, being a good parent. A good therapist works on uh, promoting independence. Yep. And so ultimately, at least theoretically, the, the job of a therapist is not to be needed anymore.
1: To become obsolete. <clears throat> to
0: become obsolete. So <clears throat> even if that doesn't happen, uh, it's important that the therapist that you work with is really trying to promote your development and in independence. Right. I say that because Sometimes people get th- caught in therapeutic relationships in which the therapist may actually be trying to uh, uh, promote dependence and continue the, uh, th- the therapeutic relationship in a bit of a pathological way.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yes, yeah, So being mindful that you're there, hopefully, is a temporary thing. You know, and there's more extreme cases where maybe it's going to be longer care but having a therapist whose goal is to help you function well and to be able to do that with your support that you have outside of the therapeutic session. How do you integrate healthy relationships into your life, whatever else you need to add to your life to create the balance?
0: Exactly. So um, anyways, that's individual therapy. Anything more you wanted to say about that, Victoria?
1: There's a lot of telehealth right now available. Thank you. I, in my private practice, I do telehealth, which works out right now just with for the clients I have. Um, and for my life, with you know, as a young mom—not a young mom, but a mom with young kids—middle-aged <laughs> mom with young kids—it um, you know allows me to see more clients per my schedule per week um, without having to commute. Um, so there's that option, and also in a state like New Hampshire, I think the telehealth is nice because in rural areas you can now uh, pick from a larger pool of people to work with. So you can do a little bit more shopping or if there's just not anyone in your area. Um, Also, too, I work with people who have maybe multiple DUIs and have lost their license, so the telehealth option is nice. Uh But then there's, you know, obviously in-person, which has benefits, too. But I think you can still facilitate the relationship over the telehealth. A lot of people at first don't like the idea. And to be honest with you, if you had told me I was going to be doing telehealth three years ago, I would have said, no way. I'm mm-hmm. not really a big tech person. I don't really like a lot of screens. But I think COVID opened up a whole other avenue or you know, maybe pushed along something that was coming anyway. And it does, I think, give more people access to clients and more clinicians access to clients or you know what I mean? Vice versa, back and forth.
0: More options, more better. Yes. So that's individual therapy. Uh, I was going to talk briefly about medication management.
1: Yeah, 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 because you're, yeah, I'm going the same direction because I'm thinking you can also do like outpatient individual, We can do like outpatient family therapy too. Good point. So you could have like a therapist who works with you right. and your kids and husband or wife or whoever you have in your life. Um, and you can also do marital counseling on that level where you meet, meet once a week and then maybe eventually biweekly and eventually you just need tune-ups or you don't need them at all.
0: Yeah, for the kids we work with, family therapy in particular can be very useful because, yeah. oh, they talk about, you know, the, the system is dysfunctional, sometimes not just the kid. Yeah. But um,
1: There's no identified patient, so to speak. Right. Often I think parents want to come in and have it just be the child just needs to change. The problem is, you know, fix the kiddo and everything will be fine when usually it's a larger picture that it can at least be uh, tuned up, so to speak, to all improve.
0: Right. So as far as outpatient uh, med management goes, that's usually less frequent. Um, I'd say probably the average is once every three or four weeks uh, to see a med provider. Those are usually shorter um, visits, 30 minutes. Um, If you're
1: lucky. If if you're lucky. (laughs) Or maybe unlucky if you have to work with dungan. (laughs) It
0: it depends. Um, I should mention, in terms of medication providers, there are really a a couple types. Um, There's uh, psychiatrists. um, The weirdest of them all. The strangest of them all by far. So if you can avoid a nurse practitioner, please do. (laughs) Um, Psychiatrists uh, are medical docs. They've gone to med school and then they do a residency afterwards focusing in psychiatry and sometimes a fellowship for child psychiatry. Um, you have nurse practitioners as well who do nursing school, and then I think it's a year or two of um, a more specific training in medication management. There are also um, PAs, physician assistants. Um, we don't have so much of that in New Hampshire, but that's another uh, specialty. That, Where are they big? I think Massachusetts. I think Connecticut. I was just talking with... Our friend Susan today, who said that PAs doing psych here in New Hampshire actually need two medical docs supervising. Wow. Which doesn't make any sense in the world to me, but that's Do you, what you know she what says. their
1: education is? Like, what's the difference between an APRN, like a nurse practitioner, or in a PA?
0: That is a great question. I don't know. We'll have, we'll have to look to, into we'll it. We'll have to look into it. Um, but most important thing in a med provider is somebody who listens, uh, somebody who has an open mind, and um, I'd say the relationship's a little less important. I mean, obviously you want as good a relationship as possible, but a med provider, even a med provider who can be a, a competent technician, um, can be effective, particularly if you've got a therapist who you can connect with. Uh, it's it's better to be able to do both and to have somebody you really like and respect. And um, some psychiatrists do therapy as well as as med stuff, but uh, it's probably the most important thing. Is
1: Someone recently told me... A little saying, uh, doctors treat, therapists care.
0: What's that supposed to mean?
1: <laughs> More like, um, you, you know, like we often joke between us, right, that yeah. you have it easy. Like you have bring the same problem to me or, or to Dung's same issue, and within five minutes you can talk to a kid and have the kid out the door, and with me it's like an hour-long situation. That's true. But I think they're both important. Yeah.
0: They are, but, but that's different. why I do what I do. <laughs>
1: Keep it simple
0: no that's absolutely true and if you think about other medical professions like uh, ER docs um, uh, surgeons uh, more technicians it's more um what, what was the term you used? You said a uh, treat treat right. treat
1: right and i don't and I don't mean therapists or like nurses care like you don't care, right. but provide care right. like the ongoing care caregiving
0: right, agreed yep. So that's medication providers. I want to make sure we have a chance to go through some of the others. We do group, they are groups. um, Outpatient group therapy. Outpatient groups, maybe once a week usually?
1: Yeah, and usually groups nowadays seem to be more temporary, like, you know, like a 10-week brief group. Right. Where you have a set, like a cohort that starts together and you go for 10 weeks. Um, but. No, at least in New Hampshire, I don't know a lot of groups that are just ongoing.
0: I bet insurance has a lot to do with it. that. Yep. Um, True. They're like, uh, you know, module modular treatment. Yep. Um,
1: the groups can be focused on various specific subjects, whether it's a support group. It can be a support group sort of thing, even like with a clinician um, facilitating the group. Or it can be more of a group where there's like a CBT group where you're learning skills. Um, there's process groups where the group is an entity unto itself, and you're looking at how clients re- relate to one another, and you're learning about self through how you relate to the other people in the group, which is a lot of what we actually do at, at Direction. That's right. Grist um, for the mill, it's when it gets really real.
0: Yeah. It's good. So, one of the principles in group therapy, uh, one of the differences, and this is. Part of the reason I think it's important to have a cohort, uh, the same folks showing up every day, um, is called universality, which means uh, kids or whoever you know, patients are coming in and getting a sense that they're not alone and that they uh, other folks share the same problems or similar problems in different packages. But that's very powerful.
1: Definitely. And that alone, if, for certain kids, if they can get that out of a group... That alone can be really healing and help them right size what's going on in their life or give them perspective. Yeah, and then groups start to have an o- their own personality, their own life. And so, if you try one group or you don't like it, you can always try different groups too. If you know if you tried it and didn't work, doesn't mean every group is going to be like that for you. A lot of people are afraid or groups are intimidated by the group therapy idea, which I understand put yourself out there in front of a group but i do think that it can there's if you're if you can take that risk there's often a level of healing that can occur
0: when you do it in community it's true and and part of the reason just like with the kids we work with part of the reason the, the reason that you don't want to do it is probably the reason that you should do it yeah right it's right. facing anxiety it's uh facing yourself yeah but absolutely um worth the risk there's some sort of hybrid programs, I think DBT often has both group sections and individual therapy sections. Um, so the, these are various sort of specialties of group and um, individual therapy, and again, I view it more as good groups or good groups, but probably for some, some types work better than others.
1: Yeah, and like I said, groups can teach you skills, um, but then if you're thinking of it like a clinical type of group, often for issues that are social-based issues or, Um, issues with how you relate to the world uh, that can be a great setting to practice those things in whereas individual therapy is often good for more internal uh, depth work if you will or just more specific stuff to yourself so they can be used in conjunction very well right get to different issues
0: so group therapy sort of the next level up oh did you want to talk about peer support groups
1: yeah, so peers are people who have been through the recovery process, whether it's they're in recovery from substance use disorders or they are in recovery from a mental health issue, uh, but they are peers who've gone through some sort of program or treatment successfully and then continue to work in the field uh, offering support on and sharing their experience of what treatment was like and bringing a lot of compassion and empathy to care. And so they're a great uh, kind of gr- I always call it like the ground level. It's almost like foot soldiers, right? Like they're really in the thick of it with people often and helping them to connect and see options. and they're usually very trained in knowing um, suggestions as where to go if you're dealing with certain issues like to the what level of care you might need or what resources in the community are out there if you're struggling with certain things. They aren't clinical. Uh, but they're very uh, supportive in nature. They can be drop-in centers. They can be like, coaching sessions you have with someone. Um, yeah. So, but the drop-in centers are relatively new in New Hampshire in the mm-hmm. recovery field, uh, like Revive in the area or Arc New Hampshire. They're uh, drop-in centers where people can come and get resources from peers in the community who are have gone through the process which is really fun. Vermont, I went to college in Vermont, my undergrad and my my master's degree, but they have a lot of the kind of clubhouse sort of recovery centers Mm. where you can go and play pool and just be around other people looking to um, have more wellness in their life.
0: This would be uh, where something like AA would fit in, right?
1: Uh, AA is more, I would say, a support group, but it's not... Yeah, it's interesting because often at like a... Drop-in center with where there's peer workers, like AA doesn't have any paid workers. It's all people just, you know, who go there to better their own life. Right. Um, whereas the peer recovery model or peer support model usually has paid. Where it's a paid position, who are like responsible for running that organization or offering the coaching sessions. So it's a little bit. It's different. Um, but yeah, AA groups and, you know, or smart recovery, refuge recovery, um, NAMI groups. You know, there's a lot of different types of support groups out there that are volunteer based where everyone's going through it together. Whereas there is still some power differential mm-hmm. in the uh, peer based support there, you know, in theory, um, and I don't mean that in a negative way want to say in theory, but there's so, a little like a more advanced than someone coming in right. new to recovery. And in an right. A, you'll have that too, but that everyone sees that more as like they're going there for treatment, whereas peer people aren't necessarily using that as their treatment. I see. It's part of a healthy life for them, but not for treatment. Right. If that makes sense. It does. And it's newer um, model. And I know Biden recently, and I have, you know, politics aside, they mentioned um, trying to increase the peer Level of care more across Mm. you know the nation because there is a crisis in having enough mental health providers and peer support workers can really add a much needed level of support to the medical care. Absolutely, that's very much needed. Yep. Yeah.
0: More treatment, more better. Yeah. More (laughs) options, more better. (laughs) Um, Next level.
1: (laughs) A new Duncan slogan.
0: See how long it lasts. Joe
1: would (laughs) cross that one off right away. He wouldn't like it. No. Sometimes more is not better. Sometimes they just need to be left alone.
0: Less options, but better options. Perfect. Next, intensive outpatient programs, partial hospital programs. That's what what we run. Um, Intermediate
1: level of care.
0: Intermediate. Uh, It's usually a package of services. Um, It's usually an everyday thing for a few hours a day, and the major difference between partial hospital program and intensive outpatient program is an amount of time. Uh, it's sort of a rule of thumb, probably partial is usually six hours a day, and intensive outpatient programs usually three. Intensive outpatient programs uh, also maybe every other day or a couple times a week where partial programs are more intensive.
1: Yeah, I think in a lot of that definition is determined by insurance companies, right. like what they their, I don't know what you call it, contracts or stipulations are, to be able to use that term with them, what they'll pay for. Um, typically for adolescents, it's a minimum of six hours a week, and then adults are typically nine hours a week for, for the an IOP. IOP, yep. Yeah. And I, interestingly, um, yesterday someone brought up a parent was concerned when they heard the PHP, partial hospitalization program, because it says hospitalization. Right. But there's no level of staying overnight in a php
0: no although partial hospital programs usually occur in a hospital setting or uh, they're more likely to be in a hospital setting but no it's it's not overnight it's, it's a few hours and in the partial hospital programs phps and iops it's a package of services so it's usually um, particularly in phps it's a doc or a nurse practitioner doing meds it's group therapy it's sometimes individual therapy family work and that's what we do at Direction. Yep.
1: We like it. We do.
0: So we recommend this level of care. For everyone. For everyone.
1: <laughs> <laughs> you know, it isn't for everyone, but I think it is a great option that we need more of in many areas um, just because sometimes once a week really isn't enough for kiddos to get traction. Um, you can, you know, like it might be great that you're, you got into one, but then it, it just sometimes is not enough. Um, and then, But maybe you don't need to go inpatient or right. to the, the ED to get assessed. And so it can be a great way to, like they call it intensive care, but doesn't have to be actually overnight or, you know, locked up as some people sometimes fear with the residential or hospitalized programs.
0: Speaking of which, inpatient programs, next level of care. Parents, uh, A lot of
1: parents find this
0: scary. Absolutely. Um, in kids. In kids, it's, it's actually going into a hospital, a psychiatric hospital, psychiatric unit, and uh, being there overnight, and usually there for a few days, average probably five or six days, and um, sometimes it's much longer, um, you know, a few weeks, a month, even at more chronic hospitals, adult hospitals like New Hampshire Hospital, people have been there for two years inpatient. Mm-hmm. So but usually it's a few mental days. health issue: Yeah, and no, no place to go afterwards um, but hospital level care is really reserved for people who are a danger to themselves or others in a really imminent way um, so suicidal actively meaning th- thoughts of suicide right now intent um, to commit suicide, uh, real aggressive um, somebody who, who just can't be home. Um, And it's a very scary thought for parents, uh, for kids to go uh, to an inpatient unit. By the way, there's only one currently for kids in New Hampshire, um, uh, Hampstead Hospital. Uh, There's far too few of these as well because they are necessary sometimes. uh, Sometimes a kid is just not safe at home.
1: Do you, what would you say to a parent who's afraid if we were to recommend inpatient care?
0: Yeah, if it's to the level we recommend it, um, inpatient level care. You know, a lot of parents will say, "Well, it's not going to change anything." You know, there's a few fears about it, and that may be the case. The primary function of an inpatient program is to keep somebody alive <laughs> and safe, and that's not a risk you want to take. If particularly if professionals are saying, you know, your child's at you know li- life and death risk, right? Um, Inpatient units can be useful in a few ways. Actually, um, sometimes meds, real intensive medication management, will make a big difference. They can do it much quicker in inpatient units. Uh, Sometimes just the break from real life and life stressors and family and school and uh, relationships makes a huge difference. Um, Sometimes just the experience of knowing that there's a safety net and some place to go if everything falls apart, is huge as well. Um, sometimes it's important kids get the message that what they say is taken seriously. So if you have children who are quote unquote upping the ante and talking increasingly about suicide and doing increasingly provocative things, even if they're not really, uh, you know, that's not really their intent, they're more looking for a reaction from folks, that experience uh, of that level of care can be huge for them mm-hmm. and realize that folks are gonna take it seriously and gee, I better be more careful about the way I communicate.
1: In terms of an adolescent versus an adult unit, very different?
0: Um, in terms of what you see there, uh, they're, they're very similarly structured with psychiatrist or nurse practitioner doing meds, usually daily checks, group therapy. Um, it's probably individual therapy, so it's uh, meals, <laughs> um, sleep, sleep. Mm -hmm. checks. Uh, But the difference between an adult unit and a kid unit is pretty stark uh, just based on the types of of problems treated. With kids, it's usually much more mild depression or moodiness or um, uh, developmental issues, suicidality, cutting, that kind of thing. Whereas with adults, you start to see major uh, mental illness, schizophrenia, bipolar. So it looks a lot different when you walk on the units.
1: More intimidating for the adult unit, probably. Yeah. Yeah. Good. And then what is – do we have another level of care to get to? Uh,
0: Residential. Um, And this is a a longer-term inpatient, not always locked. Some psych units are locked, some not. But uh, for kids, there are a whole bunch of types. There's mental health ones. There are ones for kids – we have real family problems. There's residential programs for substance abuse. Um, uh, Vicki has a lot of experience. She, she worked at Nashville Children's Home, which was uh, is, is one of the local residential centers.
1: Yep. Yeah, the residential level of care is more long-term than inpatient, so it's different than inpatient. I think sometimes people get them confused. So you're living at a facility. Um, in like, Say one, like Nashville Children's Home is a place where kids go, when they need to be out of their home or wherever they're living um, because of what's going on there or if their parents need them out because of their behaviors. There's lots of reasons why you can end up there. And that stay tends to be longer than at like a Newport Academy type of residential facility where you go um, for to treat anxiety or depression. Um, and so there's lots of different types. Um, but they can be a good option for when you've tried PHP, IOP, individual therapy, and the issues aren't getting straightened out with that level of care. And like you said, with, like, with the inpatient, residential also provides uh, removal from some of the daily stress to focus on certain things.
0: And removal from, for substance abuse, removal from the ability to use, yep. which makes a huge difference for Access. some people. Um, residentials can be weeks, they can be months, they can be years particularly if you don't have a family unit to return to or it's so dysfunctional it's 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 unsafe. So,
1: Well, thank you, Duncan. I think it's a great start to talking about different levels of care, and maybe at some point we can talk more about residential and inpatient, but um, maybe that's enough for today.
0: Sounds good. Hope you folks have found this helpful.
1: All right. Take care.
0: Bye-bye.